you need to know what's important in life. You need to know what are the things you would regret not having. What are the things that really make you feel secure and happy? And if any of those is your work, then your life's kind of pointing in the wrong direction. Like I love what I do and I get a thrill out of what I do every single day, but that's not what brings that true happiness. That's Vikas Shah, an entrepreneur, NED, investor, who's also the MD and CEO of Swisscott Group, and he's also a government advisor. But as you'll discover in this episode, he's also a bloody legend who's remarkably open about the things he's been through. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and you're listening to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. We're here to learn from top entrepreneurs, and that's made a lot easier when you're speaking to people like Vikas. He's got no facade, no bravado, no polishing for the cameras, or in this case, microphone. And although Vikas today looks the image of success, it's not how his life started. In fact, like me, he was the fat kid in school. I grew up basically in South Manchester by an international airport. And I, I, I guess that's why dream was always to become an airline pilot. There was nothing else on the cards. That was it. But it was also an odd time because I was, I was quite a big lad. So, you know, to give you an idea, when I was in my teens, I was kind of touching 20 stone. I wasn't very academic or popular at school. I was kind of one of the very first brown people at the school. So I was, I was kind of almost, almost built to be bullied in many ways. So, so it was, it was odd, but, but again, you know, it was, it was probably firmly in the middle of what you would expect a childhood to be. So it was no, nothing extraordinarily bad, but also nothing extraordinary in terms of our setting or where we were. But I think growing up with a clear dream, but also with that other angle of just not, not knowing who I was in life was, was, was odd. I'm looking at you, this is obviously a podcast, it's audio, but I'm looking at, uh, you know, pretty slim, good looking man here. Let's talk about growing up as a fat kid. I grew up as a fat kid. I understand the plight of growing up as a fat kid. I was at 15 stone, so 20 stones quite um, quite impressive. I haven't met many people that trump me, but well done. So if I think about how that affected me, um, you know, again, speaking from personal experience, very insecure. I had bulimia as well um, for like, uh, you know, in my 20s, you know, without sort of not even realizing it necessarily, but I just caused some form of mental health condition um, as a response to food and my whole psychology around food. I think it was not until I was 30 before I started to get actually comfortable with my body. And, you know, but the benefits as well, which is, you know, default uh, being the fun guy, the funny guy, the person who likes reading. You sort of, in my experience, you know, default to these other weird, um, like almost archetypal character traits that you expect a fat kid to do. So that was my experience of it. What about yourself? I, I didn't know I was the fat kid until I was old enough where it became socially consequential. Because when you are a literally a kid, it doesn't matter. You know, everyone's just colouring in and playing and it's fine, who cares? And then, you know, the hierarchy of society starts to kick in and you end up with the kind of like good looking, cool kids and the sporty kids and then the rich kids. And, and then there's this big clump of everyone else that kind of self-selects into various groups. And this is where I guess I found myself as someone who wasn't particularly good at a thing at school or most things. I was kind of decidedly average at most things. Wasn't obviously particularly sporty. And, and I also wasn't particularly extroverted. So I didn't find it easy to make friends and things. And so I ended up getting lost in my own hobbies to an extent. So, you know, I used to do bits of electronics and I loved anything to do with planes and playing with technology and reading and philosophy and stuff like this. 
And I think some of it was almost, well, I have to find something to do that I enjoy because I didn't have that other support structure of, you know, really good friends groups and so on. And then I think as I got a bit older, so let's say early teens, this is where, you know, you start to realise the implications. So to the extent that, you know, being the fat kid made me uncool, it made me unattractive, it made me feel bad about myself, you start to notice your peers more. And the real turning point, so so I started my first business kind of largely by accident when I was still really young, so I was 14, I was at school, and, you know, I wanted to become an airline pilot, very expensive career choice, and the only way I was going to achieve it was to somehow pay for it. And so I started, a, you know, doing website design and things as a bit of a side hustle, and that turned into a business. I didn't realize it was a weird thing to be doing at the time, because, you know, you're a kid, you're naive. So I remember when I first started doing speaking, like going, being asked to go and talk at something or some press came through. And I was still at school, right? But then seeing myself and being disgusted with myself was a motivator. So I hadn't had the health benefit of losing weight by this point. I didn't know what that meant because I hadn't ever lived in this other body shape. But I was disgusted with the me that I was seeing. And I was like, I I have to do something about this. I'm just not happy seeing that person looking back at me. That was the spur for me to then start to do something about it really. But it was, but I think that issue around size growing up was a massive, massive problem for me personally. And, you know, even this many years on now, the shadow of it's still there. You know, you still look in the mirror and get concerned about how you look and, you know, so, so it doesn't matter how old I get, I, I still in some ways am that kind of little fat kid from school. I look back on that journey and go, wow, like that's who I was then and you know, how much better do I feel now? And I, I sort of see it as a motivator now, even though I know that every now and again when I'm feeling low or something else happens, I, I will glance at myself and go, oof, you know, but that's fine. Like that's just a shadow that's left behind. It's like a fragment of this damage from from earlier. And that's okay. Yeah, totally. You are not the result of the actual things that happen to you, just the response. Like that is like all you can really deal with, right? The response to those moments. Um, okay, you said uh, whilst we were just uh, going in all deep, you mentioned, you know, started a business at 14. Talk to me about that. That seems, that does seem unusual. So, you know, when you're a kid, you're naive. So nothing seems odd at the time. Going back, I had this plan to become a pilot. I sort of realized these um, this career choice is expensive. And I wasn't academic enough to go into some of the scholarship programs. And you know, thanks to these bad boys on my face, my glasses, I wasn't able to go through the Air Force route. So I was sat there thinking, okay, well, well what can I do? And at the time, my, my, my dad had his own business. I mean, it was literally just him almost trading fabrics on his own. He had a computer in his office, which somebody had told him he ought to get. So I used to just go after work and, you know, muck about on this computer, taught myself to code and design. I love drawing. And so it was great. And I just suddenly thought, okay, well, I'll just pick up a Yellow Pages, which was like, a, you know, the business phone directory, phone businesses locally and say, look, do you, need any, do you need any design work doing? I can make some business cards for you. I can build a website for you. And it was a really simple plan. Every few jobs I did would earn me some money to put towards flying lessons. So what I didn't realize is we were kind of in the in the real knee of the curve of the first dot-com bubble. So this was kind of 13, 14. By the time that I was 16, I now had 
employees in Manchester, London, New York, and Sydney. We were doing big pieces of work. We were starting to get global clients. And it, it was kind of, but even then it didn't feel odd. Like people kept telling me it was odd, but I hadn't known anything different. And I hadn't, I guess, developed the institutional knowledge of culture to know that this was an odd thing to do. So in retrospect, it, it's obviously quite a scary odd thing I was doing. But at the time, it was just, oh, well, you know, let's just see where this thread goes and see what happens. We had this online um, magazine called ISR, which was Independent Software Reviews. Within the business, we developed a content management system, a bit like a predecessor to WordPress. We called it Flatpak Web. And the concept demonstrator for this was a magazine where we reviewed games and music and software. And it was amazing. We used to get sent hundreds of thousands of pounds of games and software every year just to play with, you know. And there's two things from that. You know, one of them was being asked by Aston Martin to go and review The Vanquish when I was still two years younger than I could drive, which was kind of fun. And then there was one story where there was a computer game show called ECTS in London. And me and a couple of buddies who were on this project took a day off. We went to London uh, from school, by the way, we took a day off. <laughs> and we get there. Now we're like tier one media. We were getting, you know, millions of hits. So we get our VIP passes. And we went to this computer game stand for this thing called Joypad, which is like the predecessor to the motion sense controller. And the stand downstairs was all the hardware you could play with. And then you went upstairs to the VIP bit. You know, we're kids and they're like handing us glasses of champagne. And we're like, oh, you know, probably shouldn't have this. And the only way to get off the stand was to go down a slide into a ball pit full of models. And it's kind of like, this is weird. And then the following day you get back into school and the teacher's kind of, you know, part of assembly going around the class and saying, so what did everyone do over the weekend? And someone's like, you know, played football, miss, or, you know, oh yeah, I went to see my gran. And I'm like... I can't tell you what I did because you won't believe me. And so those are some of the things where I was like, my life's really weird. It was a really incredible time in technology. And what happened to it? So when the first dot-com bubble burst, we were still very, very early in, if you like, the maturation of internet technologies into the business world. So a lot of businesses genuinely sat there and thought, well, this was a fad. And so you ended up with lots and lots of businesses saying, well, you know, we had a website, clearly it was a fad, we're not going to bother continuing. And so there was this huge retrenchment of, of, of customers and infrastructure and so on. And, and that business just simply wouldn't survive. So I effectively had to sell the bits I could as fast as I could to pay for the bits I couldn't, and then think about what to do next in life. Okay. And how do you think that failure like, helped shape you? Because it's quite early. It's quite early in life to go through a business failure. I mean, it was hell. It's one of the worst things that's ever happened to me. And because, you know, it was a real rock star journey of kind of being on the ascendant and everyone wants to talk to you and you're winning competitions, you're in the paper and magazines. And it was, it was one, you know, you felt wanted by society. You felt cool, like you were kind of something special. And then when that evaporates, you know, no one wants to speak to you anymore. And then you suddenly realize that, you, you, that who you are was just what you did. And then when that's gone, you're suddenly left back in this void of, well, who am I now that I'm not this rock star CEO? So, so that was really hard because don't forget, most people try and figure out at least the skeleton of who they are in their teens and early 20s. And so even if you're still a bit mixed up in your 20s, you've at least gone through that growing up process. Whereas I didn't. 
I, I was basically running a business during those formative years. So I almost had to then reflect on, well, what happens now? And it was hard. You know, that whole process then triggered you know, a long period of depression and mental health challenge, but it was really hard. And I think failure is an important part of the journey because it teaches you so much about who you are, how resilient you are, teaches you about how to make hard decisions, teaches you about what's important in life as well. So I tend to find it remarkable that still in, in, in the UK, to a lot of extent, less so elsewhere in the world, we still stigmatize failure in, in business rather than seeing it as, as almost a little badge that people ought to have. I'd love to like ask you to just reflect back to being early 20s Vikas and you know what actually your experience was then mindset mental health like narrative about who you are you know you've gone from successful uh, guy with crazy stories for your other friends that are not doing as interesting things to I mean failure but not in a horrible way but in a very like black and white this is my current reality way how did that affect you I think it was horrible because at that age, you know, your, your life's still quite narrow. And so all of a sudden, the most important thing in your life's gone. And so it is like grieving. It is like losing a friend or a relative. And, and it really feels like that because it's a gut punch when, 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 when these things happen. And the anxiety that I'd had previously was an incredible tool because having an anxious mind is almost the, the dark side of being creative. And most people I know who are creative also have anxiety or depression. And so there was this kind of creative gift that came with this dark sort of, well, B-side. And I found that anxiety was really useful. I was always quite high energy and things like this. And it was almost when the reason for the anxiety went, that's when I suddenly was face to face with the black dog, as they say, which is well, actually, this is the reason you were like you were. And now the rumination begins and the anxiety gets worse. And you're suddenly, you know, ruminating about the fact that you're a failure and no one likes you. And, you know, that's the time where I should have intervened early and got the right help. But obviously I didn't because it's worse now. But even then, business culture was this, you know, hyper alpha, hyper masculine thing where you don't really talk about these things. And and it got to the stage where after a few years, you know, I was kind of back in business and the business was doing okay and blah, blah, blah. But I was just very depressed. And, you know, there was one year where that led to four suicide attempts and, you know, one of them got very close. And and that that was a major turning point for me. But it was, it was odd because it was manageable levels of anxiety for a long, long time until suddenly it wasn't. And a lot of that just comes to the fact that I'd never learned resilience. I'd never learned what that meant. And it's not something that you're taught either. You know, I, I want to just see what I'm capable of in this life. And that's going to be really hard, but I w really want to do it. And so we have to train people that toughness is really, really important to survive this. And so the mental health talk is not just about recognizing when you have a problem and having that discussion. It's you need to learn, you need to learn how to get tough. And you need to learn how to be resilient and how to just get things done. And that's the bit that's often missing from today's conversation around it. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. 
It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. That's interesting. I, you know, I tweet a lot about mental health. Um, that is like pretty much mental health and mental health and entrepreneurship is basically my, my cross section. And I get a lot of pushback for some of the things I say, which, you know, based on my experience, I'm not a mental health professional, but, you know, I'll say that some things like your mental health is your responsibility, no one else's. And people will, you know, push back massively and all that stuff. And I'm like, listen, I mean, you know, you get these edge cases and, you know, I have people in my family. My uncle was a schizophrenic. So, you know, people always say, look, not if you're mentally ill. And I'm like, no, no, you know, you can assume every, you can assume every uh, comment here is not if you're mentally ill, right? A mental illness is not really a conversation around mental health because it is an edge case needs to be treated entirely differently. You cannot treat a schizophrenic with your mental health, your responsibility. It's like, no, there's a shit show going on there. It's a much more complicated discussion. But for most of us in the general population that have mental health and want to take care of it over the long term, it is your responsibility. And a lot of people, especially I see young people, do default to making it other people's responsibility. There's even this um, stuff with businesses at the moment. You know, there is only so much, you know, I literally run a company in the mental health space and we have mental health sick days and we have, you know, uh, huge budgets for anything people want to do, therapy, nutrition, like you name it. But at the end of the day, what we don't do is select the stuff for people. We try to help them. But their mental health is their responsibility. They still have to pick the things they want to do. They have to participate. And then they have to make those conscious choices themselves. And we have to create the uh, environment and discussion that they should be doing those things. But it is not all on employers to force it. Because like anyone that needs help, you have to want it. And also, I think it's important to realize how much grifting is out there, right? You know, we, we think about the beauty industry, and the beauty industry has been classic at this by telling you what's wrong with you and then selling you a new cream to fix it. But, but let's not, for any split second, think 
that that's not how a lot of coaching works. And that's not how a lot of entrepreneurship consulting works. Because a lot of the time, it's people who are making you feel bad about yourself and then selling you this 10-week coaching solution to fix it or this five-week business mastery program to fix it. And this is exactly the same. You know, I've got friends who spend so much time doing self-development and self-improvement work that they don't actually end up improving. They just keep going in these little circles. And, and these these are grifts. My, my real assertion is a lot of that stuff is people grifting because they are saying, right, Dan, think back to a moment when your life was really awful. Now, how awful was that now? that You shouldn't feel awful about that now. I can coach you through it with my six-step program. It's a grift. And I really feel like we need to see some of that stuff for what it is because half the time in life, whether it's entrepreneurship or the creative industries or whatever it is, you have to just get on and try it and deal with things as, as they happen. You can't prepare yourself in advance for a lot of that. Yeah, the Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan till you get smashed in the face, I think is such like always the perfect analogy for entrepreneurship, isn't it? But coming back to it, you know, it is interesting, right? Because um, in your experience, um, you got up, you did something great, you got smashed in the face, and then you tried to commit suicide. Now you are a suicide survivor, and I'm making assumptions here, but you know, probably very grateful that you survived that. Other people won't be suicide survivors. And so, you know, there's also this really interesting dichotomy around the conversation, right? Which is, yes, totally agree with you, you do really need to experience these things, but obviously, there's a very real consequence too at the other end of, you know, not really taking stock of the severity of your situation at the time and your emotions. So what do you think led you to not just one, but four suicide attempts? And I guess any like helpful insights you have for people that might be going through, you know, we're talking the perfect time, sadly, inflation all time high, funding dropping out, like this is going to be causing a lot of negativity in the entrepreneurship market. A lot of people's businesses will be going out of business imminently. It's it's odd because there's two responses to that question. The first response, which is the kind of practical one, which is the reason I ended up in that situation is because I was too proud to get help. And I was too proud to go and and go and say, look, you know, I I just can't cope. I've, I've run out of steam. You know, I think what you said before was quite important, which is our mental health is our own responsibility. But that sentence is not quite complete. Our mental health is our own responsibility, comma, until we can't handle it. And at the point at which you really can't handle it, you need to delegate that responsibility to someone else. But importantly, a professional. You know, I, I wasted so much, like thousands of pounds on on crap, like homeopathy and I really should have just gone to a doctor and said, help. You know, that was really, really important. And I wish I'd done that a lot sooner. You know, I can't go back in time and change that, but but there you go. But the second answer to the question, which I think is, is perhaps the most tr- more truthful one, though it sounds the fluffiest, is you need to know what matters in life. You need to know what's important in life. You need to know what are the things you would regret not having what are the things that really make you feel secure and happy? And if any of those is your work, then your life's kind of pointing in the wrong direction. Like I love what I do and I get a thrill out of what I do every single day, but that's not what brings 
that true happiness. I get that from, you know, my friends and my wife. And, you know, it's just, that's the stuff that really matters in life. And I think once, once I'd been through that process and it took a long, long time to kind of rebuild, and then you end up getting your values aligned right, you are more resilient to it. You are more resilient to what life throws at you. And that's the bit which I think we get wrong so early on. Okay, let's bring it back. You are in your, in your early 20s. You've gone through a period of grief, realistically, saying goodbye to a business that once was, and you've had these suicidal experiences, and you finally sought help. What happens from here? Where does your journey take you? So it was kind of liberating to have other people who were responsible, well, not responsible, but, but had a certain amount of delegation for my well-being. Because particularly when you, when you own a business, you're responsible for everyone else. And there's not really anyone responsible for you. And that's hard. That's a kind of tough deal, really. So it was quite liberating and quite wonderful to have a group of people whose job it was to make sure I was okay and to help me through it. And the process of counselling and therapy was really important because it helps to unpick the patterns of thinking that had developed. It helped to unpick the demons that had, had emerged in, in my mind. And, and it takes a long time, right? You know, it took a good few years of therapy and different methods of therapy to really get to a point where... I was able to step away from some of those, some of the darker aspects of, of, of my own thinking. But it was really important to stick with it and to realize that it's gonna be hard work. And it was a project in a way. And it was kind of interesting because the minute I saw it as a project and not as a quick fix, my whole attitude to it changed. Because initially you're like, yeah, yeah I'll go to a few therapy sessions and you know, talk a bit and then I'll be fine. And then I'm like, well, no, it's going to be a multi-year project to get strong and to feel good and to get back on track and take whatever medication I need to and, and just, just, just get better because I can. And when my attitude towards it changed, I was much more compliant with the process and let myself just go with it and deal with the ups and downs. But it's hard. It's really, really hard work and it's ongoing work as well. Yeah, I mean, it's great that you're able to share. What, what actually made you want to get back into entrepreneurship then? This is going to sound really weird, but I don't like the word entrepreneurship because I think it's just, it's too overloaded with crap. Entrepreneurship is basically just a set of skills that lets you create things and run things and understand a bit about how the market works and how business works. And, and I, I just like making things. I like building things. I like seeing what's possible and exploring different avenues. And I like the freedom that you, you, you get from having a successful business. It's, it's, it's not that I wanted to get into entrepreneurship, but I just liked that activity as a creative pursuit. You know, if I'd have been a painter, you wouldn't ask me that question. If I'd have spent my whole life painting and then had a depressive episode and then painted something else, you wouldn't be sat here asking, so why did you decide to paint again? Well, it's just, that's what I do. That's a creative. This is my pursuit. And so naturally, I just, just went on and, and, and cracked on with that pursuit. There was no guarantee of that, though. You know, I was definitely of a mindset where I was contemplating, you know, should I go work somewhere? Should I go do something else? But well, this is what I was going to say to you. You know, I do. I agree and I disagree. I agree broadly with the statement. But actually, in reality, so many people try entrepreneurship and realize it's not for them and do something else. And I actually think 
the reason I don't like entrepreneurship, if anything, is because it's a very, uh, it's very glamorized. It's very assumed everyone wants to be an entrepreneur, wants to run an entrepreneur and in those circles. It's assumed that everyone would want to do it when actually, you know, my wife, for example, last thing she'd ever want to be is an entrepreneur. She loves her, loves her job, loves her life, loves her capabilities. They're all well suited to a big company. I think that's actually, to me, more the stuff that's difficult with entrepreneurship. So, you know, whereas a painter, I kind of feel like, you know, if you have a craft like that, potentially, yeah, you might, you might carry on. If we assert that entrepreneurship in its truest sense is a craft, then yes, when that business fails, you have to consider, did you enjoy that craft enough to want to pursue it? You know, it's, I, I've had friends who've actually, you know, tried to have success in the creative spheres and not succeeded and go, oh, actually, I don't think I wanted that enough. But that's something that you know internally. You know deep down within yourself what it is you really want. And so at that point in my life, yes, I had lots of offers to go and work in the city and, and whatever else, but I was like, well, no, I'm, I'm kind of not done yet. I, I want to just try it and see what happens. So I had that internal sense of, well, I wanted to follow that thread and, and pursue that craft more. But I, I agree, it could have been just as easily the case that I did it, didn't work out. And actually the discovery was, well, I kind of didn't want to do it in the first place or I didn't want it enough. Because plenty of businesses fail, not because of the business, but because people just didn't want it enough. I think that's very fair. Okay, so you wanted it enough. What did you want? What do you do next? So there was a chance conversation where, I mean, my dad was asking me, so what are you going to do now? And he sort of said to me, whatever you do, don't get involved in textiles. And I just thought that was a very curious statement to make. <laughs> it's like reverse psychology because he knows you really well. Well, no, it was genuinely, he was really genuinely discouraging me because he was like, it's a crap industry. I don't, I don't think you should. And it was really just the industry was being disrupted in many ways because of changes in international trade and, and, and communications. So I basically bought his business off him in essence and said, well, I'm going to give it a go and see what happens. So using the knowledge that I'd built up in technology and in design and marketing, you know, created a, a new business model there. And then I kind of, I really enjoyed that startup phase. I, I really enjoyed that kind of early stage aspect of business as well. So that's when I kind of also decided to maybe, you know, look at startup investments and and see where I could, you know, help other businesses grow from, from having been on this journey for a while. But I, I always had this sense of, I'm not done yet. Like I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel like I'd achieved. I didn't feel like I'd got to a point where I could rest. I just had this feeling of, I want, I need to keep going. Um, my, my dad was just trading really basic industrial fabrics. And the reason the industry was changing was containerization, global travel, communication, was breaking the opacity barrier that you had in, in trade. So all of a sudden people could go buy it themselves, right? So it was bringing in a new business model. It was bringing in a model of profession. It was bringing the professional services model to textiles, which was, which was really where I thought the business could go. And I, and I thought, well, let me give that a try. And then that was kind of the time where as, as that business grew and, I, and I'd learned a bit about business resilience and put resilience measures into the business, it also meant that I then had some additional time. And I was like, well, maybe I can invest in other startups. So I started doing bits of teaching, working with universities, trying to hunt down startups. And then there was a really odd part of that, which is I, I mentioned earlier about this online magazine that I had when, when, when we had that first business. And I'd forgotten how much I enjoyed writing. And this was also a period in time where as the business model of, of newspapers and magazines was changing, 
we went from having these like wonderful long form articles to kind of short form bite sized content, lots of infographics, and that kind of wasn't the media that I enjoyed consuming. So I started literally just on a basic blogger website. It was thoughteconomics.blogspot.com at the time. Just ringing up people I'd met over the years and saying, can I just interview you? I think it'd be kind of fun. You know, the traffic started building, traffic started building. Uh, I managed to get an interview with Jimmy Wales, who founded Wikipedia, and that was kind of fun. And I got a bit of a kick out of that. And then I just thought, well, who else can I get to? And so after a good few months of, of, of negotiating and finding my way through, I then ended up getting an hour in a bit on the phone with Buzz Aldrin, which was utterly surreal. And that was the start of, that was 2007, and that was the start of the journey of, of what's now thoughteconomics.com, where I've, I've interviewed now like 500 plus of some of the most influential people on the planet, you know, Maya Angelou and Richard Branson and, you know, F.W. de Klerk and all sorts of interesting people that are shaping the century. I always describe it as a hobby that went horribly rogue. You know, fast forward almost 13, 14 years, you know, the site gets, you know, sometimes over a million readers a month. And I get an email a couple of years ago from a publisher saying, you know, would you like to do a book? And I'm like, I haven't really thought about it, to be honest. It's basically a hobby. And that turned into a book and you know, the paperback's now coming out in a couple of months. And I still, to this day, class it as something which is in hobby land because the minute that turns into a job, I will stop enjoying it. But it's something which I'm extremely grateful for because it means that every other week I get an hour on the phone with some of the greatest minds on earth. And, and I feel very privileged to be able to do that. You've obviously interviewed amazing people in Thought Economics. You've had Richard Branson, Noam Chomsky, Hans Zimmer, you know, so many more. What are some common traits that you found between them? Anything surprising? They're all left-handed. Yeah. <laughs> they all have exactly one digit missing. No, um, the, the thing that I found really surprising was I, I went into this world with absolutely no knowledge of, of doing interviews. You know, I, I'm not a journalist. I, and so I came in with all the preconceived notions about what people are going to be like when you meet them. And so I think the thing that I was unprepared for was just how nice people are. Like, it sounds really weird, but then when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. To be super successful at anything, you have to be likable. You have to be able to bring people with you and be charming and make connections. And, and it is an important skill to have. And so when I'm speaking to all these people who I'm assuming are going to be really difficult or really challenging or really spiky, and they're all really lovely and welcoming and friendly, you know, that was a big surprise for me, actually. The, the, the second part of it, which was, again, more of a surprise, was learning how diverse the lives are of people who I assume are domain experts. So there's very few entrepreneurs that I've interviewed who are sat there reading entrepreneurship books. So when I've been to visit a lot of these people, particularly on the entrepreneurship side, their bookshelves are everything else. It's art, it's sports, it's, you know, science, it's everything that isn't business because that's where the inspiration comes from. Otherwise, why, why narrow your domain of knowledge unnecessarily? So and that's applied in everything. So when I've interviewed scientists, politicians, entrepreneurs, sports people, the width of their intellectual interest has been incredibly surprising and also really, really refreshing. But also, like I said, just the warmth and how well they understand the psychology of the person in front of them and how well they can read me and, get, and give me their attention as well. And, and that's, that's the sort of stuff which really, I think, separates leaders from, from the rest of society in many ways. 
Yeah, so you're, you're reflecting specifically on their ability to, to gift attention. But in a meaningful way. So it's really easy when somebody, you know, especially when you, re- when you reach a certain stage and someone asks for your attention, it's very easy to put yourself on a pedestal and go, but of course you want to speak to me. I am, of course, so marvellous. And that puts you in a different mindset to what I've often experienced, which is the person I'm speaking to is just as curious about me as I am about them. And then you end up in this really beautiful dance and that's what makes a great conversation. Don't get me wrong, there are exceptions to that and there have been exceptions to that. But in general, you know, even when I'm speaking to people who've you know, achieved 20, 30, 40 billion pounds in wealth, the humility with which they approach the conversation is remarkable. And so I try and approach everything the same way because it's important. And if I think at the conversations that haven't made it onto the website where it's just not worked, that's been where people have come in with ego or they've come in with you know, a preconceived notion of what they think I want to hear rather than letting things happen. So, so I think that emotional intelligence piece combined with humility is really, really critical to be successful. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we have canned five or six interviews in the past um, despite pleas for different kind of behaviour and attitudes. But I think as a fellow interviewer, I can 100% relate to a lot of the kind of traits you're referring to. Um, you know, people, there's a big difference of people showing up and, and doing the job because they've chosen to. That's the other thing I think that's interesting is, again, I like to speak from personal experience rather than overgeneralizations. But, you know, one thing I've learned on my journey as I get busier and busier, you know, I used to be a massive people pleaser and I, I, I gave myself burnout from trying to say yes to everyone and everything and as much as I possibly could. What I learned instead was it will actually end up not being very helpful to a lot of people. First and foremost, people say, can I grab five minutes or 15 minutes? And, you know, there is fuck all you can learn in five minutes or 15 minutes. Um, and um, I've now started to explain that to people. What is more useful is to understand what people actually want to know from you in advance. So I, I ask them, you know, can you like send me an agenda? What would you like to discuss? And we'll make sure that we stay on topic and also that I can come prepared to help you with those specific things. Or maybe... Quite often, I can't help with any of those things. I'd rather just tell you in advance and put you on someone else and ask them for you. But then, you know, in reflection of my own experience and what you're saying, you just end up having to be quite selective. And once you're selective, you have more of yourself to give. So suddenly the attention that I can give to someone when I'm actually trying to help them is sincere, it's thorough, it's actually helpful. And it isn't this sort of scattergun approach of like five minutes to everyone. Like no one wins that way. You end up getting burnt out. No one actually comes away thinking... What a great guy Dan was. He really gave me his attention. It's like, no, you can't wait to get me off the fucking phone. Well, that's because I'm trying to help too many people. So I think in the exact same example of like your interviewees, right, that most successful people I've met have just become masters of saying no. And not even apologetically. They're doing it for themselves and they're doing it for you. They're making conscious decisions about where to spend their time. And when they spend it, they spend it really well. Exactly. And, and to be honest, it's something that we all need to keep one eye on, you know, when you look down at your watch and you see those seconds ticking past, that's really real. Like that should frighten you every time you see that. Not frighten you in a in a sense of, oh my God, I need to achieve more because the clock's ticking, but just the clock's ticking and we're here for a frighteningly short time. And so the time that we use should make us happy. And that doesn't mean being happy at the cost of the happiness of others, but it does mean being happy and making sure that you're doing the right thing for you. So so I, I say no to a lot of, well, the, probably the vast majority of requests that land in my inbox. I'm very protective of my time outside work. It feels selfish 
in a culture where people assume you should be always giving your time. But it isn't. Because if I'm not happy and I'm not managing myself well, then I'm also not going to be productive and be able to give well in the periods of time that I choose to. Yeah, it's spot on. And on that note, you know, you should be fucking terrified that I've taken so much of your time up. You're getting closer to death with every sentence that I say. Um, so I well, I'm been, glad to say that the quality of the conversation means that I do, not, I do not wish that death to be any sooner. Thank God. All right, so I've done, done uh, you know, that, that is, you know, the quote I should put on my website, right? Guest officially said, didn't want their death to come any sooner, thanks to being <laughs> No, I mean, I mean, oftentimes there are conversations where you are hoping that that death occurs midway in the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> a little heart attack right now would be quite smooth. But I'm glad to say that on this occasion, that has not been the case, Dan. It's been a pleasure. It's been, been really wonderful speaking with you. So last question for you, uh, for entrepreneurs that are looking to follow in, you know, in similar footsteps, right? Building a life that they choose that has passion, that, you know, with, you know, even side projects that they absolutely love that aren't proper work for them. What is the advice that you'd pass on to them? One of the most common blockers that I see in people is, is thinking too much about it. Now, you know, I, I'm an advocate for planning. I think you should always have a bit of a plan and a bit of a direction but just enough to give yourself some parameters and guide rails. But you need to just get on and try things and experiment. And this is probably the best time that has ever existed to have experiments and to figure out all the different things you could do in your life and all the things that maybe you could try and make work. We've never had this many platforms. We've never had this level of support. We've never had this kind of access to funding. So if ever there was a time where you ought to try if you want to, it's now. And the thing you need to do is stop trying to get over-advised and listen to too many opinions, but just get on and find that first little experiment you can to see if your idea has some legs and if you actually enjoy that. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is just every single day, do one thing that improves your resilience in life because whatever you know, high performance career you choose to go on, that's probably the single most important skill you're gonna have. Can you give me one example of one resilient thing you, you have done today? Is it tolerate these questions? So alongside tolerating these questions, now, I mean, your questions have been wonderful, by the way, just, just a caveat. But so one thing that I do every day without fail is I'll get up and I do my exercise in the morning. And then only when I've, you know, only when I've got up, trained and done that, will I touch this little addictive brick of my mobile phone. And, and what that means is I've actually got a bit of mindful time. Like when I started mindfulness, I didn't, I, I couldn't connect with the sit on a cushion and navel gaze type mindfulness, but I'm, I can really connect to mindfulness when I'm exercising and just, you know, experiencing all those different things. And mindfulness is probably the most important resilience building tool we have. So that's one thing that I do practically every day as part of that journey. I love it. And actually something I will give you a, a little insight to, um, I completely agree about the mindfulness thing. And I think mindfulness is, um, you can cut it many different ways. And I, um, I was trying to do mindfulness by, uh, by meditating, the sort of more traditional way every day. And then my daughter came along nine months ago and my you know, world got turned upside down a little bit and I was finding it very hard to find the time to meditate in with everything else. And so instead of beating myself up over it, 
I said, okay, my, my, I have a little habit tracker of the things I'm trying to do. Uh, and I was like, okay, I'm trying to achieve one mindful activity every day. That is what it says in there. I have made that meditation and it has been for five years. However, things have changed. I am swapping that for the time being for reading to my daughter every day. My mindful activity every single day is just, you know, obviously, you know, at nine months old, she's still trying to eat the book rather than listen, but it doesn't matter. You know, everything's, everything's a chew toy. Um, but, you know, that's my mindful activity. And if it's two minutes, if it's 10 minutes, whatever she can tolerate in that moment, I'm like, that is a mindful activity. And that is, uh, you know, it's also a good opportunity to build resilience because, you know, it turns out those books aren't that tasty. No, and it's and it's doing a little. It's doing it little and often. You know, I will give you an example. So today I broke that rule because I got up and I trained, but I had there was something that I had to listen to. So I was listening to that whilst I was training, and I could see messages pinging in, and that's okay because it. But because later on I'll go for a little walk, and I won't take that with me, and I might have ten minutes without it. So, so it's also just being kind to yourself and realizing that the world won't allow you to necessarily have that discipline, but you can always find a way. You can always find a way of doing something little and often that reinforces those behaviours. And that's so important, I think, as a survival skill for, for modern life. Couldn't agree more. Because as you know, I could talk to you for hours, but I will let you go. So thank you so much for joining us on Secret Leaders. Thank you for having me. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. Uh, I remember there was one, I was in there, and um, the poor guy died. He was, I had to help dress him in, in, in the back room. He was about 20 stone. They've got this maneuver where you can put their arms up and address them and the guy like that. And um, there was one point where he lifted his arms up. One of his arms just fell down heavily and punched me in the nuts. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I've gone from being a tech entrepreneur to being hitting the nuts by a corpse. I need a change of industry. That was Ian Strang, the founder and CEO of Beyond, a startup that tried to shake up the death industry and succeeded in doing just that, but ultimately failed as a business. This all happened recently, and Ian has come in open to share the gory details while still fresh in his mind. Find out what happened next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media, with Will Stolomon, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.